All right, Tokyo, you wanted the best. You got the best. The hottest Buddhist in the world, Brad. Hi. I feel like I do this video about once every three months. The, the video about bad experiences in meditation. And it's almost a kind of a regular feature. Like I should be like stupid Petrix used to be on, on David Letterman. You know, I should just do it like that. But somebody sent me an article by a guy named Dan Lawton called When Buddhism Goes Bad. So let me start out by just reading you some highlighted paragraphs or whatever sentences from this article. And it's dated July 16th, although it doesn't say what year, but I assume it's, it's new, so, uh, so maybe it's a new one. Here we go. The type of meditation I had been practicing was jhana, a deep state of absorption concentration said to be essential in the Buddha's awakening. All day I had been concentrating on my breath and scanning my body for various sensations. As I lay there musing in the brisk darkness, he's, he's in bed at, at night after the, uh, the retreat, after a day of the retreat, I suddenly sensed a tightening inside me. It was as if I were being ever so gently wound. Then quickly the pressure intensified and I breathed in a rapid fire staccato and violently shook. I was a guitar string being tuned beyond its highest range. The string popped. I hate it when that happens. A spike of fear slashed through my guts and that's when I split apart. The next four hours were a hellscape of terror, panic, and paranoia. There were almost no thoughts, only my body begging to escape my skin, convulsing like a fish fighting for life. The fear was a bottomless trench. I knew nothing except that something, everything, was terribly wrong. For minutes I was completely immobilized, and even when I regained control I was incapable of finding help. I wasn't sure if I was real, or if the door to my cabin was real, or if anyone outside of it would be real. I punched myself in the head at one point, ow, just to feel something solid. I couldn't help myself because I couldn't locate myself. Where was I? Who had I become? Finally, after hours, the attack smoldered and I drifted off. It was the worst night of my life. I relayed my experience that afternoon to the two teachers who were overseeing the retreat of about 40 meditators. They were both kind, compassionate, and welcoming, suggesting various ways that I might alter my meditation practice to alleviate my symptoms. The problem, I explained to them, was that I couldn't stop being mindful or aware of everything that was going on within my mind and body, and the awareness felt like it was choking me to death. After a day of trying alternative meditation approaches, I left the retreat. What happened to me that night may sound exotic, bizarre, psychotic, and unusual, but it's actually more common and predictable than many people think. As meditation practices have exploded in popularity in the West, they have brought with them an array of adverse experiences far beyond the typically billed benefits of lower stress, decreased anxiety, and reduced pain. The terrain of fractured, disruptive, and altered states of consciousness has often been explored in Buddhist teachings through the centuries, but when these practices made their journey into Western culture, a sufficient understanding of the downsides of meditation was lost in transit. In fact, today, mindfulness meditation is primarily used as an off-label treatment for mental health issues, a strange and torturous journey for a technique that was for centuries practiced by Asian Buddhists for achieving liberation and therefore avoiding rebirth. This rebranding, which has mostly whitewashed negative experiences of meditation and framed it as in alignment with Western mental health goals, has created a booming business of retreat centers, courses, instructors, consultants, and apps. 
According to a 2017 report by Market Data Enterprises, the U.S. meditation market is predicted to grow by $2 billion in 2022. <laughs> Not for me, probably, but there we go. As an instructor in mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, MBSR, I spent four years teaching meditation as a full-time job. A long-time meditator, I have logged roughly 4,000 hours of practice in over 10 years, including more than 100 days on roughly a dozen silent meditation retreats. I've never tried to figure out the hours I spent meditating. Well, I did once, and it was just weird. Uh, I'm extremely knowledgeable of both Buddhist and secular frameworks of meditation, have read countless books on the subject, and have taken instruction from numerous renowned Western meditation teachers. Prior to this retreat, I was an unabashed evangelist for mindfulness. I credit meditation with precipitating numerous positive changes in my life. It made me less reactive, helped me form better relationships, and assisted me in curbing my drinking. It opened me up to a deeper understanding of my mind, and perhaps most important, gave me a craft and a framework through which I found meaning and purpose in my life, but 14 months ago my meditation practice brought me to my knees. In the months after the retreat, I suffered from symptoms diagnosed by a therapist as post-traumatic stress disorder. I frequently experienced involuntary convulsions and simple tasks like cooking meals reduced me to panic attacks. Uh, as I navigated life with meditation-induced PTSD, I also felt betrayed. While I had heard cursory mentions of difficulties during meditation, the primary framing had been positive. I remember clearly a senior teacher answering a student's question of how much they should meditate. Well, how happy do you want to be, he had quipped. In fact, when I had reported convulsions and some shaking on earlier retreats, teachers never voiced concern. Uh, most of the literature I had come across on the subject of negative experiences had framed them as stages or signs that one is progressing toward awakened states. In my mind, there was never a reason to stop pursuing meditation. Over a decade, I didn't meet a single teacher who described any situations where meditation could be damaging or should be ceased, so I soldiered on. But unbeknownst to me, there was someone already sounding the alarm. Willoughby Britton is a clinical psychologist, neuroscientist, and associate professor at Brown University. She is also arguably the world's expert in adverse effects of meditation. And I'm skipping over a little bit. Then, the meat of Britton's talks was the results of a 2017 paper she co-published with her husband, Jared Lindahl, called The Varieties of Contemplative Experience. In it, they examined distressing and functionally impairing meditation experiences of 60 Western Buddhist meditators. They documented 59 types of adverse effects in their study, including involuntary convulsions, panic, anxiety, dissociation, and perceptual hypersensitivity. A far cry from the mainstream branding of mindfulness meditation as a panacea for all our woes. Their message wasn't particularly well received, and why would it be? The livelihoods of many in the room, including mine, rested on the fact that mindfulness was going to be the saving grace of modern discontent. Britain and her co-presenters uh, were bursting the bubble to the frustration of some in attendance. Almost every mindfulness retreat, I guess she's presenting this paper to a bunch of uh, meditation teachers, you probably got that. Almost every mindfulness retreat, event, talk, or discussion I'd previously attended involved a fusion of neuroscience, psychology, testimonials, anecdotes, poetry, and meditation, all of which were patched together and synthesized to fortify the preeminence of mindfulness as a healing approach. But Britain and her co-presenters were savaging much of, much of the science as sloppy, pointing out considerable misunderstandings and weaknesses in the current body of research, challenging whether secular mindfulness programs were actually secular, and generally extinguishing a lot of the feel-good vibes one expects to imbibe at such a gathering. 
and skipping down way, way past uh, to near the end. Britain told me something that infuriated me. It made me want to knock someone's teeth out. She said that many of the leading figures in the world of mindfulness meditation have had experiences like mine, but they just don't talk about them. It's an open secret of sorts. What kind of effing person could go through something like this and not warn other people, I yelled. When I did this, I gestured frenetically with my right hand like I was a karate instructor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he's really angry. Uh, Britain explained to me that it's likely that my meditation practice, specifically the constant attention directed toward the sensations of the body, may have increased the activation and size of a part of the brain called the insula cortex. Uh, activ activation of the insula cortex is related to arousal. If you keep amping up your awareness, there's a point where it becomes too much and kind of a scientific thing. And here's a line I just decided to highlight because it's about Sam Harris. Numerous participants develop problems after using Sam Harris's popular waking up app. Thanks, Sam. Uh, one might wonder if these wounded meditators had pre-existing conditions that triggered their experiences. Most of us don't. A finding similar to Britain and Lindahl's study, which reported 57% of practitioners suffering adverse effects didn't have a history of trauma, and 42% had no psychiatric issues at all prior to meditation practice. Well, that's, uh, that's like about half, so I don't know. Anyway, what we share is a feeling that's common among those who've had traumatic experiences, neglect, shame, and a sense of being unheard by those in power. Case in point, the words and work of the neuroscientist Richard Davidson. Davidson and journalist uh, Daniel Coleman's 2017 book, The Science of Meditation, spent almost 300 pages documenting the positive effects of meditation. When it came to negative effects, the authors dedicated two pages. In a 2019 Vice article, Davidson suggested that those who have meditation-related difficulties simply aren't meditating correctly. A Spirit Rock Meditation Center, widely viewed as the mecca of American Buddhism, really? hosts scores of silent meditation retreats each year. On its website, there are reminders not to bring scented soap due to allergies, articles touting the benefits of meditation, and even a recipe for the gluten-free almond cupcakes served in the center's acclaimed kitchen. Yet there's not a single word about a fact every prospective meditator deserves to know, colon, meditation can harm you. And uh, that's all I highlighted. There is a lot more to the article. It's pretty long. I'll leave a link to it. This is something I have talked about numerous times. One of the things, one of the reasons I put this video, you know, did this subject after the one I just did yesterday, is because this is, uh, in a lot of ways, the, the particular example that this author gives is not a great one, but it, a lot of times when you read, when I read, one of these uh, accounts of a meditation experience that was extremely bad, you know, something uh, that frightened or uh, made the person, you know, feel like they had PTSD or whatever, it almost sounds the same as the description of uh, a so-called enlightenment experience. You know, the, the so-called enlightenment experience and the so-called, uh, what we call in Zen Makyo, the world of the devils experience, uh, which is uh, kind of what he's talking about, uh, are, are often the same sort of uh, sensations, but interpreted in a radically different way. One, one is being you know, elated by the experience and one is being terrified by the experience. As I said, this particular example is not a great one of that, but you find examples like that. So... The reason I put this uh, video after the last one, which I've said three times at least, is because I, I, I want to point that fact out. And I don't want to be one of these people that this author rightly condemns for never saying that there can be a downside to meditation. The, 
the reason I got into Shikantaza, well, I don't know if it's the reason I got into it, but one of the reasons I still am into it and still recommend it, Shikantaza is that goalless practice where you're not trying to do anything, is that you are far less likely to have these sorts of experiences doing Shikantaza than doing some of the other forms of meditation, like the one he describes where you're deliberately trying to make something happen. You're, you're trying to, to, to you know, have an experience. Uh, deliberately by doing this heavy concentration or some other sort of practice often uh, working on koans is the same sort of thing you're gonna you're gonna be much more likely to have this sort of experience but as regular viewers or readers of my stuff may have already spotted the description of his night of terror is almost identical to a description of a night of terror I had which I put in my book Hardcore Zen and I think the chapter is titled I Think of Demons uh, after the old Rocky Erickson song and it's about the world of demons and, and I had almost exactly the same experience I don't know how long he says his lasted four hours I, I don't know if mine was quite that long but it was an experience of like bottomless terror ah! you know like complete terror and uh, and I got over it and and I talked to my teachers about it and and sort of figured it out and it never happened again you know I've had a little bit of this and that uh, since then but nothing like that that first uh, very very intense experience and it's one of the things that is a possibility in a meditation practice that you will have some experience like this and like I say it's not all that different from a so-called awakening experience in, in a lot of ways it's just that it's processed differently and this is one of the reasons why in the tradition that I'm part of we really are into the idea of taking things very slowly this gets frustrating to to people who it gets frustrating to me you know, frustrating to a lot of people who get into this style of Zen because it's so slow and basically nothing happens for years but the best way to avoid an experience like the one that is described in this article and, and you know the half a dozen other articles I've done on this video channel uh, that are kind of saying the same sort of thing is to take it very slowly the best way to avoid that sort of experience is to take things very slowly and then if like me you have the experience uh, you might be better able or better equipped to deal with it. Also, as he rightfully points out, taking mindfulness out of the mix of, of Buddhism is not recommended, if you ask me. And it's something I talked about, I don't know, a week or two ago, that whole idea of research and development. A lot of what is now Buddhism is the sort of what, what a lot of us think of as the religious aspects of Buddhism are really, at least in my way of understanding them, matters of research and development. They are things that Buddhists meditators have seen happen and then they try to work with that and figure out how to deal with it and then they add some other stuff to kind of make the practice more you know generally available generally easier for for people to take and a lot of what has been done historically just because of the way 
people thought of things in India and then later China and Japan and Korea and places like that, um, a lot of what happened is, is borrowings from religious practices. They found that, that religious practices were often very useful in helping people deal with some of the, the states and also framing things in religious language was useful. You know, talking about gods and demons like Makyo, the world of demons and things like that, would help people work with that. Now, we have this society these days in the modern West that insists on, on secularism, and there's a whole historical reason for that because we had a, a big problem when religion and science clashed, and I've talked about that. And, and we've separated religion out from things and science out from things. So now people want to have like a scientific basis for the stuff that happens to them in meditation. And maybe that's what will have to happen. You know, people won't want to deal with these religious seem, seeming ways of dealing with the troubles one experiences in meditation. So they'll come up with scientific ones that are basically the same ideas reframed in a different sort of language, if, if you ask me. But then you might not have chanting and things. I don't know how you're going to have a scientific chanting or, or, or a scientific, uh, what do you call that, precept ceremony or something. Maybe there's a way to do it. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure it out. But I thought it was important to point that out. And uh, it's, it's an interesting article, uh, well-written and well-reasoned, and brings up Willoughby Britton again. She's uh, the, the champion of, of all this stuff. I had a couple of email exchanges with her like 10 years ago or something. I don't know how long ago. And she seemed nice. I've never met her. It might be interesting to meet her sometime and have a conversation. Uh, there's a little uh, sneaking uh, suspicion in my mind that that some of this stuff goes a little too far in the opposite direction and uh, but the, the fact is if you're going to engage in a meditation practice it's important to know that this is a possibility and it is really irresponsible of people who are trying to make a living as meditation teachers not to talk about this but I understand you know if you're trying to make a living at it I could probably make a hell of a better living as a meditation teacher if I did that if I didn't talk about this stuff if I presented it the way you know these kind of more commercial meditation programs are, are presenting things but I, I would feel dishonest doing that and I, I can't do it uh, so I don't and subsequently I don't make that much money which is a great segue into if you want to send me money you can send it to the URL you are seeing on your screen below which is hardcorezen.info slash donate that's hardcorezen.info slash donate that'll take you to my Patreon and PayPal links that is my only way of making a living right now I'm not part of an MBSR program or anything like that so I depend on your donations uh, but if you can't donate or don't want to donate that's fine we are offering we I am offering this for free and and we, as in the universe, is offering this for free, so you don't have to pay, so that's fine. And another reminder that my podcast is now having more stuff, although it's mostly, uh, so far, audio from these videos, but I'm working on something new. And that my blog is back up, and I got some new stuff on there, too, so check that out if you want to check more things out by me. See you around. Have a good time all the time. Bye.